Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Disappointingly for you, it's just me introducing this week's episode, but don't worry, you will hear Ed in the rest of it. On the day when we would usually record, he was in his constituency in Doncaster North wearing a rosette, knocking on doors, thrusting leaflets into people's hands, kissing babies. And I should point out that all of this was in support of the local elections, not just his latest hobby. Now, I am well aware that nobody wants to hear me droning on if Ed isn't here, so I'll keep this as mercifully short as possible. I'll give you my reason to be cheerful. It is Lindsay who runs Ed's office. Basically his life too. She had a significant birthday this week. I will spare her blushes uh, and not say which one. But you have got Lindsay to thank for the fact that Ed turns up to do this podcast week in, week out. And even the fact that he does so with his shoelaces tied. It's all down to Lindsay. She is the best. So happy birthday, Linz. And let me tell you about the episode then. We're delighted to welcome back to the podcast the wonderful Michael Lewis, who's here to talk about his new book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. He's just one of the finest non-fiction writers working in the world today. He's also a joy to talk to. He's the most compelling storyteller. He has the most brilliant brain. I'm sure you've heard of his previous bestsellers like The Big Short and Moneyball. And the last time we spoke to him, he was telling us about his previous book, The Fifth Risk. Now, if you heard that, you might remember that book was a warning that the institutions of US government were being eroded under President Trump and risked leaving the US dangerously unprepared for the kind of disasters you can't anticipate. Which, as you've probably guessed, leads us to his new book. What is interesting is that while we've seen the warning of the last one tragically play out over the last year or so, Michael now argues that, in fact, the problems were much deeper than the Trump administration alone. And this new book, The Premonition, tells the story of what went wrong in the US response to coronavirus through the lives of a number of people working on pandemic planning And this is what Michael is incredible at. He finds the most unlikely people at the heart of these huge moments and then draws their stories out in the most compelling way and then illustrates the dysfunction and the huge underlying fault lines. And his writing, it really is something else. There is a reason that he's so acclaimed. This episode is the conversation that Ed and I had with him very recently. It's fascinating. 
it's so interesting, not only to hear about the stories and themes in the book, but also to get a bit of insight into how he finds these characters and how he approaches telling their stories. That's what you're about to hear. We just love this conversation and hope that you do too. Talking about his new book, The Premonition, this is Michael Lewis. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I am absolutely delighted, psyched, I think, as American teenagers once used to say, uh, that we are joined by Michael Lewis, best-selling author of numerous books, including Moneyball, The Big Short and The Fifth Risk. And his latest book, which I highly recommend, is uh, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. So I love this book uh, and I love all your books. Um I guess the one place to start is before I picked this book up, and actually during the pandemic, the phrase that had been rattling around in my mind was the fifth risk, because in a way, the fifth risk was saying, there's the risks you don't know, the risks you don't expect. And that's the thing we should be really scared about in terms of Trump. Now, actually, what's I think really interesting about the book and maybe surprising is the story isn't really about Trump. It's, it's, Trump is a player, but this is about the handling of the pandemic, what led up to the pandemic and the, and the plans for it. Just talk to us a little bit about how it relates, before we get into the substance of it itself, how it relates back to the fifth risk and how it came about. So it does obviously relate back to the fifth risk. I didn't know what horrible thing was going to happen. I just assumed eventually something horrible would happen and that we would have a management problem on our hands and that the president would have no interest in managing it. And that all proved to be true. The surprise to me when I got into the story, and for me, these things, this one, it really is a story. It was sort of like, I have these characters. I discovered three characters who I thought of as maybe the best three characters I have ever had in my career. And they were interrelated in a way, that, in in a narrative way. And I was gonna just go where they led me. And they led me to a a slightly different place than a reader of the Fifth Risk might expect just because of the emphasis on Trump um, or the lack of emphasis on Trump, that all of them had had interacted with the Centers for Disease Control well before Trump was elected. All of them had been just deeply worried of what would happen if that place had had to manage, actually control the disease. They had seen, you know, the fifth risk makes this point that it isn't just Trump. Trump is sort of the end game, that, that we've allowed this machinery of government to rust. And he came along with a sledgehammer and, and it was easier to break. Uh, but but it, it wasn't as if there were there were glorious moments before Trump that that that's not how it worked. It was a steady degradation. And I found when I was writing it, I found myself surprised by how little I wanted to write about Donald Trump. When I started, I thought I'd be going to Washington and living in the Trump administration. And it turned out that that wasn't really the story to tell. And how long into the COVID crisis did you decide that it was something you were going to write? And how did you find, I mean, incredibly compelling, as always, but incredibly compelling characters. How did you find them? So my books really only get written if some lucky things happen before they get written. And the lucky thing that happened for me was five years ago, I wrote a book called Flash Boys. And a San Francisco money manager insisted on having dinner with me for the sole purpose of telling me that there was a scientist at UCSF who was going to be a character in one of my books one day. 
People do this to me all the time. And, and all the time I have to be polite and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was so insistent that I said, okay, I'll go have a sandwich with this guy. And this guy was named Joe DeRisi. And Joe DeRisi is one of the three main characters in this book. And Joe DeRisi was at that moment taking over a new institution called the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, funded by Mark Zuckerberg's hundreds of millions of dollars, but actually overseen by his wife, Priscilla Chan. Whose goal, the goal of which was to eliminate disease from the planet by the end of the 21st century. And Joe DeRisi himself was just this riveting virus hunter who had spent his career building technologies and chasing after, to, to chase after viruses in animals and people. And had this plan for like setting up a global system of tripwires in the event some pathogen leapt from animals into people so we would know early. I was so interested five years ago that I thought, it's such a shame I'm ill-equipped to write this and I don't know where to put it. <laughs> so the way this started was in March of last year, March 11th, when my children's school was shut down, I called Joe DeRisi and I said, what are you doing? And he was at that moment scrambling to compensate for the ineptitude of the CDC and effectively creating both testing and public health resources for the United States. At that moment, I thought, I don't know if this is a book, but I'm going to jump in with both feet and see what happens. I was led to the other two characters kind of directly or indirectly by by him. Now, I, I have to sort of make a confession here, which is that um, my son Daniel read the book, as I said to you before we switched the microphone on, and he came up with a much better summary of it than I did, which is you have to stop the fire before it starts. Talk to us about the fire of Man Gulch, I think it is, which plays a sort of quite an important role in this, in the background. Well, one of the main characters of the book is a fellow named Carter Mesher, who I think is fair to say reinvented the whole idea of pandemic response. He was just a critical care doctor who, uh, through a series of accidents, ends up being pulled into the Bush White House when Bush freaks out that the United States has no pandemic plan. And Carter, as he's developing, he and his, his, his partner in crime, um, another doctor named Richard Hatchett, when they figure out how far in ahead of the disease you need to get in order to stop it, that it's an exponentially moving process, a virus, a flu. They're thinking of a flu virus, but it applies to COVID. Um, and by the time you see the flames, by the time you see the disease in the form of death and illness, you are weeks behind. That, that, that It's reflecting infections that occurred weeks before, and those infections have been multiplying. At that point, you can't catch up. And so Carter found himself in trying to explain their idea about how to attack a pandemic, which ended up being the world's idea. They ended up spreading this all over the world. Uh, he needed a metaphor. He's like, how do, I, how do I get across exponentially growing processes to people? And he settled on fire. And the fire in particular that, they, that he would talk about when he would get up in the hundreds of presentations he made to persuade people like the CDC that they need to think about it this way, uh, was the Man Gulch Fire that was written about by a writer named Norman McLean in a book called Young Men in Fire. And the Man Gulch Fire was so interesting to Carter because it was 12 young firefighters right after World War II who were parachuted in to a gulch in western United States to put out what they thought was a routine fire. They're walking down a gulch towards a river, and they see, uh, they don't realize the fire is in front of them. They think the fire is to their left, but they see the fire coming at them. And they all had heavy packs and they all had these axes 
And they looked at the, at the speed with which the fire was moving, and they thought they could outrun it. They turned and, and ran. And, um, you know, 57 seconds later, the first young man is incinerated. And with his axe and his pack on his back. And the, the story, the moral of the story of Carr was that fire, it's not going to be moving in a minute at the same speed it was moving a minute ago. But your mind is still stuck at a minute ago. And diseases like that. The leap he made was we need to approach the epidemiology early in, the, early in any kind of outbreak in a pretty radical way. That we can't, you cannot wait for the, for the data that enables you to be certain of the lethality and the transmissibility of a virus. By the time you have that data, your response is too late. So he put enormous effort into kind of creating what he called redneck epidemiology, tricks to figure out what's going on before, before the virus has fully declared itself. And, and so then allowing you to deploy your, your arsenal of tools to respond uh, fast enough. I don't know if this is stretching the analogy, but with, with you writing this book, did that apply to you at all? In that, that it, did it feel at all like you were trying to sort of figure out what was on the black box as the plane was still in a, a tailspin? It's funny you say that um, because it's totally true that there was a different. I took a different approach this time to a book than I've ever taken. I, I shifted. I, I shifted my my focus from from structure of story to character. I was so interested in the in the three people at the center of the story that I and I I I knew they were so riveting to that they would be so interesting to a reader that I just said whatever happens happens because normally what I'm doing is shuffling around you know structural ideas on the floor of my office about how the thing plays out and I couldn't do that this time because the thing hadn't played out H- having said that I mean if you look at the book there's a trick to it and the trick to it is that the pandemic doesn't occur until about page 185. And it's a 300-page book. It's not the blow-by-blow blow history of the pandemic. And, it's, and, I knew, and I knew when I started that I had an ending. And the ending was in about June of last year, when all three of the main characters realize it's over. That you can kind of get out a whiteboard and pretty much predict how many Americans or Brits are going to die, and and that the response was an utter failure, and there's no there's no going back, and that they and their minds shift at that point to what about the next one? In their view, there is a bigger one coming. That's what they're afraid of. So that so all so at that moment, I knew I had an ending. So I had a place I was going to. And I didn't have to really worry about what happened in the pandemic after June. Um, so that, that, made it, that made it easier to do it. It was less nerve-wracking uh, because of that. I mean, there's so many different striking things about this book. One of the things that struck me most is that George W. Bush comes out better than any other book I've read um, uh, because he, you know, he went away in the summer of 2005 and got freaked, thought he'd had Hurricane Katrina, 9-11. He thought, you know, this is another looming disaster and he shook things up and actually policy changed. Um, Talk to us a bit about that, but also, I mean, extraordinarily, a a, a teenager science project rewrites history. It is the most amazing story. So George Bush first, briefly. As I say, you know, 
it really is a story and I could only go where the characters took me. And one of the places the characters took to me was to this early, this moment in the Bush administration where Bush, who was utterly rattled because he'd gone through 9-11 and Katrina, Hurricane Katrina had just occurred and wiped out my hometown of New Orleans. Um, and someone at that moment, I mean, it's kind of cruel, hands him a book by John Barry called The Great Influenza about the 1918 pandemic. It's like just what he needs for his summer reading. And he comes back absolutely freaked out and says, you know, he and he turns to someone and says, what is the, what's our pandemic plan? And in his, someone in the White House, and that someone in the White House said, we don't have one. And he, he actually got very angry and um, the White House spun into action. And it is amazing how fast government can move when the president's pissed off. Days later, they have... What isn't a plan, but a plan to have a plan, which actually, which actually is a plan to have a plan to have a plan, but a, a document that Bush gets up, uses to get up and give a speech about, that causes Congress to allocate $7.1 billion to pandemic planning, and uh, they're off and running. I mean, John Barry's book is the book that is the book that costs $7.1 billion, and it, it's, it's the most amazing thing. And... And what, but what they do then is what was so interesting to me. A, a doctor, fairly young doctor, who was in the White House and, and was sort of the junior guy in all these meetings, but was turned to because he was a doctor and thought to be just sort of like expert on anything medicine, to kind of manage this. His name was Rajiv Venkaya. And Rajiv says, whatever we do to plan is going to be different from anything that's been done before. We're going to keep the Centers for Disease Control out of this because they are already, in his view, a kind of ossified institution that's risk averse and will be proprietary and about it. And we're going to have we, all I want is people from relevant other relevant agencies who have demonstrated the ability to think creatively about things. So he puts out an APB to the agencies, and from that, two of my main characters arrive: two doctors who sit and start thinking about. How you, it's the questions, there are a billion questions they answer in this pandemic plan. But the question that the book noodles on it, because they noodled on, was what do you do before you have vaccine? Before, they're thinking flu, but whatever. What do you do, what can you do before you have pharmaceuticals, drugs? Um, and the conventional wisdom at the time was, you can't do anything. And the conventional wisdom was that because in 1918, they tried all these social interventions. They closed saloons, as they called them at the time, and schools and tried to ban large public gatherings. And to the naked eye, it looked like it didn't have any effect. These two doctors, Richard Hatcher, Carter Mesher, go back and essentially rewrite the history of 1918 using old newspaper articles. They go back and they see what is the timing of when the virus arrived in various American cities and what is the timing of the social interventions. And they map it out and they see, oh my God, St. Louis had half the death rate of Philadelphia because St. Louis instituted these things earlier. They, they put out the fire before it started in, some, in a sense. Um, or at least started throwing water on the fire when it was a, a, a small fire rather than a big fire. So what leads, then the question is like, what are the interventions? Like, how do you think about it? And they need, for this, they really, they, they, they're looking at the crude versions of what became, become very sophisticated models by people like Neil Ferguson at Imperial College. They, they, it's the beginning of pandemic disease modeling right then. And nobody really believes it or trusts it 
but these guys think we're going to pull these modelers in. But the models are too clunky to use. They're massively complicated, and it takes, if you ask, like, what happens if you close schools? It takes days to get an answer. Through social connections, Carter Mesher, one of the doctors, is sent this kind of toy model, a much simpler model, that is the product of a 14-year-old girl in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, applying for a sci- for, for, to a science fair. She has, she is, she, the girl, his name is Laura Glass, has a father who is a scientist at Sandia Labs and, you know, a genius, like all these people at the National Labs. And the father has taken a real interest in the, his daughter's science fair projects. She has seen he has this model that he's using at his work called an agent-based model, which enables him to analyze interactions between lots of little things in a system. And he's using it for various things, and, but she, she's watching the screen as he's using it, and she sees this, like, it starts with lots of green dots on the screen, but there's one red dot, and the red dot sort of bounces, whenever it bounces off a green dot, it turns it red. And she says, that looks like the spread of disease. That, that you could use that to see how, how people infect each other. And I could, and he goes, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, yeah, we could do that. This thing spins out of control. He becomes obsessed with his daughter's interests. She becomes, you know, she's all in with her science fair projects. And two years later, they have this thing that finds its way into the White House via, via a friend of a friend. And Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett look at it and say, my God, this thing actually works. And they start to test various social interventions. It leads them to the importance of schools in disease transmission, for example, which you think and I think of, oh, well, that's obvious. But actually, it wasn't obvious to anybody at the time. School buses turn out to be incredible. What is it, 500,000 school buses a day in America? Yes, everybody's thinking about the subway, but there's five times more school buses. And on a school bus, the concentration of humanity is, is, is much denser than it is on public transport. Carter Mesher takes a, 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 you know, a tape measure out to measure like the space between desks in, in schools, the space, the, the, the width of the, of, the, of the school bus seat. And he, he creates these, to dramatize for people, he, he, creates, he draws pictures of what the average home would look like if it had the social density of a school. And they're preposterous. It's like 50 people coming out of windows. The model lets them experiment with, in, a, in an artificial town that Bob and Laura Glass have created with rules about how the disease moves, which look like a lot like the disease, like COVID or flu, and so, rules about how people behave and how close they are together and how they, how they come into contact. When the red dots hit the green dots, um, you get a pretty good estimate of, like, ha- of how it moves, how fast it's going to move, and how you shut it down. Um, and Bob Glass, the scientist at Sandia Labs, you know, a year or so into it, he's realizing his daughter has led him to something that the world does have not thought about, or it's not even thought possible, and that no one's going to know about this because he's not part of the club. He's not an epidemiologist. He's not a virologist. He's nothing. And nobody. And he starts to he starts to badger people in the field, and he doesn't. They won't even return his phone calls. It's not until these docs in the White House call him out of the blue and say, we've seen this model, can you get on a plane and come? He's just like, whoa, be there tomorrow. And uh, this whole thing happens kind of off to the side of American government. The, the doctors are in the White House reinventing pandemic planning, 
Bob Glass is moonlighting from his job at Sandia Labs because he's terrified that if his bosses find out that he's talking directly to the White House, everyone's going to get fired. And she doesn't win the high school prize. And she doesn't win the science fair. She doesn't win the science fair. That's exactly right. I don't know what's what's more surprising, this aspect of the story or that George W. Bush had read a book. I think that's unfair. I was not a fan of the Bush presidency, to put it mildly. I, I think the man himself, um, he, read, he was a big reader. The reading wasn't the strange thing. The strange thing was the, the effect the book had on him. And then, then, you know, that they do their best to try to figure out what the hell do you do and that they write this plan. It takes them two-something years to not just write it, but persuade the world of its wisdom that then becomes effectively what the whole world does when COVID... I mean, I, I, I did interview other countries. I didn't put them in the book just to get it. But there are other countries would say, people in other countries, Cambodia, would say, we're just doing what you guys taught us to do kind of thing. We learned this, this playbook from the CDC. How come you're not doing it? Uh, you know, it, 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 and so it was, it kind of proved, it demonstrated its power the, the the plan they wrote in other countries. And Carter Mesher, I mean, I can tell you what a strange thing it is to be him because he, I think you could argue he saved hundreds of thousands of lives, maybe more, in other countries. He's watching other countries embarrass us uh, because we don't know our own plan or understand it. And then he watches his mother die of COVID because his own country did not understand what the gift he gave them. As I say, this was a case where I had these characters who were so extraordinary, I didn't have to really worry about story. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, I I wanted to ask you about that because when I'm reading it, I was just thinking, oh my God, he's such a good writer. How he is getting these... People with you know, huge brains and a, a grasp of science to tell these stories in such a way that it, it feels like it's just an account of the decision they're making. They're using these great analogies and they're, they're telling the story in such a compelling way. I'm, I, I'm thinking as I'm reading it, oh, this, this is Michael's writing. He must have just amassed loads of stuff and detail from people who can't speak human and then panned for gold and edited and edited and edited to get it into a story but you're you're saying you that that's not the case and they they genuinely are this compelling in the way that they gave their account of it i did feel that that well especially with joe derisi a bit and a bit with carter mesher that my job was just to microwave the material that all I had to do was warm it and deliver it to the audience, to the reader. But it is, it is true that the best characters are usually not very good at telling their own story because they don't think of themselves as characters. And in the case of Charity Dean and Carter Mesher, the two, 
really the two main characters, they weren't that, they weren't as efficient at telling their story as I was. They didn't know, quite know their story. In, it, it took them a while to, I had to help them understand it. So that's, that's, I think that's true. But I knew that the material was there. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I can't control. If the material's not there, I can't do anything with that. Um, and having said that, you know, it's funny. The one of the ways you get the material is by badgering them. It's this. I just. It's immersive. I had to immerse myself in their lives, and for their point of view, it's it's the sign of an idiot that he asked the same question four times over the course of four months. Didn't he hear the answer the first time? And um, kind of six or seven months into it, Charity Dean said to me. I asked her. It was a mistake. We were on a long drive, and I said, "So, what have you made of this process? You know, you've let me into your life." She just said, "I say." She just said, "You know, you now know me better than either of my two ex-husbands," and she, and she and she said, "That's not saying much." I said, "Well, what have you made of the process?" And she said, "I had this thought, kind of three months in. Nothing about this man's process inspires confidence." that she said, if you had not written these best-selling books, I'd have been so out of here because I just didn't... You keep asking the same questions over and over. You don't seem to get the answer. You don't know the difference between, you know, a virus and a bacteria. You know, all this stuff. She said, I have to teach you all this stuff. And and I had to, I didn't really want to explain to her, but that's how you get to the characters, is that you give them... You come at them over and over and over with the same boring questions, and you get... Sometimes slightly different answers to the same. And question. without realizing, are they simplifying and simplifying? They, yes, time? they're forcing them, forcing them to make themselves comprehensible to my mother, uh, and uh, that's right. And to me, you know, to me, I needed to understand. Um, and and sometimes, you know, when people are develop expertise, they forget what it's like not to have it, and so they they assume a level of they're making jumps in the beginning that. That don't you, they're hard to follow or hard to track. I find that writing is a bit like playing tennis. That and on the other side of the net is my material, and the better the material, the better I play. And like the better your opponent, the better you play. And there are times when the material is so much better than I am, it pulls, it lifts me up. And this was this was one of those times. Can I can I ask you about the um, the editorialising as you put it because I always find this a, a fascinating part of your work. Start with the CDC, who who as we've already touched on, don't come across well to put it uh, with British understatement. Um, I mean, there's lots of different aspects of this, but I mean, basically, as I understand your story, they 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 pro- they gave a proportionate risk averse reaction in the 1970s to a potential flu ap- epidemic the he- the chief of it had to resign they got slammed for it and then it forced them you said earlier on that they're risk averse in a sense they 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 weren't risk averse they were sort of the opposite to risk averse they were aggressive they took their responsibility for controlling disease very seriously and were willing to risk their jobs to make decisions in conditions of uncertainty to prevent disease from spreading. And they did that. They, 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 in an ambiguous situation, they active, acted aggressively to vaccinate the population against the, a pandemic that didn't come. And it was regarded as a catastrophe, but would have been a far greater catastrophe as if the pandemic had come and they hadn't vaccinated the population. But nobody appreciated that. And um, from that moment, it wasn't just a, a cultural drift in the institution. They were, the, the job of running the CDC was switched from 
being a, a career civil servant who had a lot of protection and, and who, who ran the place for you know, a decade or more to being a political appointee appointed by the president who would be there for 18 months or two years of the very short-term jobs and who would be on a very tight leash. Uh, and it, it naturally became a m- more politicized, more fearful, socially fearful institution. What's the wider lesson of the CDC? Is it about the media environment? Is it about uh, risk aversion in, in state bureaucracies? What, what, what do we take out? What do we learn from it? I think the big lesson, and it's across all the actors in the story, because it's essentially the story is an is a indirect description of a, a broken system. And it's, it's, it's a system that includes private companies and nonprofits and, and, and government entities that uh, the only places it worked is where, where the incentives were, were good, where the, incent, where, where the incentives weren't screwed up. It's be careful what, the, what, in, what you incentivize people to do. Essentially, inside the CDC, um, they were increasingly incentivized to never make a mistake and their status came increasingly from just publishing academic papers. It, it drifted into becoming just an academic institution. If you do that to the institution, you're not going to have a, an institution that's actually useful in fighting disease. It's not a battlefield commander anymore. It's not, it doesn't have the latitude to do, to do what it needs to do. Because the, and the people inside will forget how to do it because they aren't incentivized to do it. You know, if you made me God and gave me the American government and said, start to fix this thing... Um, the, the first easy thing to do is take the 4,000 and something presidential appointees that we now have that run our government, that actually those are the man, form the managerial layer of the government, and reduce it to about 200 and have the managerial, managerial layer be, be a, a, career, a career position so that the people who are running it have a, the long-term view of the places they're running. That would be, that would be number one. Um, but there's this whole public education side of things. Um, the, the citizens are, don't know how to evaluate their government. Uh, they, they don't, we've lost, we've lost, the civics has been bled out of the educational system here. And people don't understand that, like, for example, if you are running a pandemic, you're going, you're going to make mistakes. If you're trying to put out a fire before it starts... Um, you are going to sometimes spray water on something that never was going to be a fire. But the benefits are you're not going to, your, your village isn't going to burn down. And um, it just, you know, people I think probably have more of a sense of that now. Uh, but, but that's something that has to be sort of understood in advance because when the thing comes, you can't explain it to anybody. That, that this job is a job in which people you know, like a money management job. Wall Street understands this, that, yeah, sometimes you're going to pick the wrong stock. Th- that's not, you don't get fired for picking the wrong stock. You get fired for years of underperformance and you, and you get rewarded for years of overperformance. So the, eva- the evaluation of, the, of the, the people who are in the decision-making jobs needs to be more intelligent. Having said at the outset that this wasn't a book about Trump, and in a sense it's surprising me and maybe ending up surprising you, just reflecting on Biden now being there, isn't it? It's also true, isn't it, that if you had had Biden there or basically anybody within the sort of normal bounds other than Trump, you know, 
there was a strategy in place. Somebody who decided to take up that to the, the strategy developed in the 2000s, the outcomes would actually have been very different. So, so Trump may not be the sort of villain of the book, but he is clearly so culpable if you learn the lessons of the book. That's so true. That's very true. The, what would have happened if, if, um, if even George Bush had been there, right? Um, would, would, there would have been much less illness and much less death. But we, Amer- the country would have discovered that it actually not only doesn't have a public health system, it doesn't. It has 3,000 local public health officers who are not stitched together in any way. It would have been still messy. You would have still had this, this problem, which predates Trump, coming out of the CDC of we can't make any decisions until we have perfect information. Uh, and so you would have had this, this sand in the gears that would have been discouraged a president, any president, for taking any kind of draconian action up front. However, you're right uh, that it would have been better. And, and you could see, you know, you could see, even in my state of California, that never, you know, Trump just said, we're not going to have a federal response. That it, was like, it was like sending America to war state by state, rather than having a, a federal army. But, but so in my state, um, there are po- pockets of the state that actually ran the playbook. They ran it late, right? They started too late. They started in, in, a, in a, end of March, but, but, um, but nevertheless, they started. And the death, but there are parts of my state that didn't, that said, we're not doing any of this, or we're, or we're, gonna, we're gonna run the public health officer out of town if they try to do this. Um, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, has a third the, the death rate of Orange County. Uh, it, it's, it, you can see the differences. Uh, so you might have gotten you might have gotten something like the Bay Area success out of the country if you'd run it really smart. I'm not sure it'd have been quite that good. But th- and then what you have is the United States actually does better than all the other G7 countries instead of worse. You know, you you it's what's amazing to me is that we UK and the US prejudged by panels of experts before all this happened to be the best prepared for a pandemic end up being just failing so spectacularly. You say the book is obviously called The Premonition, and you touched on this earlier. We understand a lot more about putting out the stopping the fire before it starts than we did. But yet, Charity Dean, who I think is, I mean, all of your characters are compelling. I think she's like, seems absolutely amazing character. Um, I mean, it ends on quite, on a sort of relatively pessimistic note, doesn't it? It's distressing that a woman who is clearly a supremely talented public servant who wants nothing more than to remain in public service, feels driven outside of public service to solve the problems she wants to solve because she thinks the government won't do it. I'm not sure she's right. So I don't know she's right. And I don't think she knows she's right. But the fact that she has to, she sets up, she set up a company called the Public Health Company, uh, which sounds like an oxymoron. But she's att- and attracted enormous talent and lots of venture capital. And I'm sure it's going to be a success in some form. But her basic idea is to create what the CDC should be as a private institution so that we have the resources to handle a, if we, it, it, a private sector enterprise that can do this if we need to do this again. So that part of the story is depressing. I never found myself depressed writing this thing, though. I, I was exhilarated writing the thing. And I think I felt the exhilaration because the fact these people exist 
was just incredible to me that we have these, this, these human resources in our society. It feels a bit like, all right, our team just got routed and we didn't win a game all season. Um, but if you actually look at the team, there's a huge amount of talent on it. And it's just a matter of managing the talent better. Uh, it isn't a matter of, oh, we'll never win because we don't have the talent. And so I kind of felt the, way, the hopefulness you'd feel if you walked into a losing team's locker room and you realize, my God, these people can play. They, they, just, they, just, they just weren't organized properly. Well, look, Michael Lewis, it's always an incredible pleasure to talk to you. The, the book is The Premonition, a Pandemic Story. It is out now. We, we highly recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And I'm, I'm still cheerful. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Our thanks to Michael Lewis. And we thought that after listening to that, you might want to hear our previous conversation with him. So there is a link to that episode in the description of this one. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All the research and guests come courtesy of Joel Pierce who is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish London. You can always read more on our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. As ever, a tip of the hat to our friends at Left Foot Forward. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed our music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. Sorry that I lack Ed's gusto when saying Henry's name. He hasn't been Ed Miliband. I've been Jeff Lloyd and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.